This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Navarra Live on a big day in British politics. A Home Secretary resigns and an ex-Prime Minister is promoted to Foreign Secretary. All very strange and it comes after a very dramatic weekend. Ash, I know you were marching on Saturday. I was marching on Saturday. Um, It was easily one of the biggest protests I've ever been on, I would say, uh, comparable with the anti-Iraq war protests. And everything I saw was, you know, very, I don't know, it was like kind of a family day out. You had a real range of ages. People were there in good faith calling for a ceasefire. Lots of people said specifically they were there because Suella Braverman told them not to. So it seems like a bit of an own goal on her part. I thought it was an incredibly impressive demo. And we were at the back with sort of lots of people who'd come down on, on, on coaches. So met lots of people from, from around the country and many a Navarra media viewer. So if, if, I, if you said hello to me um, on Saturday, um, thank you. It was very nice to bump into some of you there. Um, coming up later tonight, how Israel are exploiting identity politics in their latest wave of pretty gross propaganda. And we've also got Israeli President Isaac Herzog. He appeared on the BBC this weekend with some props. Um, we're going to talk about the credibility of those props. Um, and of course, David Cameron has today returned to Westminster politics. Stay tuned for all of that. Suella Braverman has been sacked as Home Secretary. It didn't take much, just undermining the Metropolitan Police, emboldening the fight to get into scraps with the Metropolitan Police, and branding hundreds of thousands of members of the public a hate march. Um, Ash, straight in. Um, this isn't the first time Braverman has been sacked as Home Secretary. And what's your reaction this time around? Well, I suppose we've got to wait six days to see if she'll rise Lazarus-like from the tomb once again. But it seems pretty clear to me that Suella Braverman was angling to be a martyr of the Rishi Sunak government for quite some time. And come on, this woman did everything she could. She was truly freelancing for the past couple of weeks. She was saying that homeless people who live in tents have made a lifestyle choice. She whipped up so much hatred against pro-Palestinian protesters that she basically caused a riot at the Cenotaph. And she directly ignored instructions from Downing Street to edit that article from the Times. And I think there was only so long that Rishi Sunak could indulge or ignore or hope to weather out this, um, you know, quite flagrant disregard for prime ministerial authority. And she had to go. And we're going to talk about David Cameron a bit later. I think the fact that in order to plug the ministerial gap, he had to bring back a former prime minister, that tells you this wasn't a man with an awful lot of options. So I think he tried to stick with Suella for as long as he could, not because of any real ideological affinity or goodwill, but because he shored up his right wing flank in terms of the Parliamentary Conservative Party. And with her gone, he had to seek alliances elsewhere. So enter David Cameron. Lord, how we missed you. Um, some good analysis to get us going. Uh, let's look in more detail at the sequence of events that led to Suella's sacking. On Saturday, despite Braverman's attempts to have it banned, the pro-Palestine demonstration turned out to be one of the biggest in Britain's history. Now, you can see just the scale of this march um, in this aerial 
footage. Now, organizers say 800,000 people attended. Um, protesters traveled to London from around the country to show their solidarity with Palestine to demand a ceasefire. Um, and the march took several hours to cover its 1.3 mile route. It actually took me about an hour to get to the starting point of the march. It was that busy. There was sort of a queue to join the march, a march to join the march. It was really, really genuinely impressive. It was also incredibly peaceful, unlike the smaller and more violent actions of the far right, um, claiming to have come to London to protect memorials on Armistice Day. This is how groups like Tommy Robinson's EDL behaved at the Cenotaph just after the two-minute silence at 11 o'clock. And the violence didn't stop at the Cenotaph. These were the scenes near to the Palestine March where police stopped a group of far-right agitators from disrupting it. By 3pm, 82 arrests were made to prevent a breach of the peace. Pro-Palestine protesters also faced troubling encounters with the right as they made their way home. This footage was recorded in Waterloo Station. Terrorist fires, Yeah, yeah, you terrorist. Keep going. Who are you, you we were born in this country. We were born in this country. I found it so annoying they were called counter-protesters the whole time. I mean, they were just thugs, right? They were just thugs that came to London to cause some problems. Um, three of those men you saw in that footage have now been arrested. Um, there's little doubt that the far right turned out after what appeared to be encouragement from Suella Braverman, with some even using the very same language as the now former Home Secretary. The Guardian reports this. Many stated explicitly that they had travelled to Whitehall because of comments made by the Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, who days earlier had claimed that police treated football supporters such as Neil unfavourably compared to politically connected minority groups. Um, she's the only one making any sense at the minute. We're sleepwalking into a race war, said a middle-aged man who said he was a Sunderland fan but did not want to be named. Armistice is our day, he said, or he added. So Armistice is our day, the people who, who had a riot at the Cenotaph. And The Guardian also had this interaction with one of the far-right counter-protesters. It's getting ridiculous, them taking our streets, attacking the Cenotaph, said another man, a black scarf covering the lower part of his face. Who's them? The Palestinian mob, he added, echoing the words of Braverman, who had also alleged that the police were too soft on pro-Palestinian mobs. Um, of course, there was no one, no one attacked the Cenotaph. There was, there was no pro-Palestine protester who attacked the Cenotaph on Saturday or any day before that, because that was never the plan. It was never even going past the Cenotaph. It was all so, so concocted. Yet despite the violent scenes on Saturday, Braverman doubled down in this pretty disgraceful tweet, Fred, I have to say. I read this originally with my, with my jaw to the floor. Um, not a surprise, but still, you know, shocking nonetheless. Our brave police officers deserve the thanks of every decent citizen for their professionalism in the face of violence and aggression, 
from protesters and counter-protesters in London yesterday. That multiple officers were injured during doing their duty is an outrage. The sick, inflammatory, and in some cases, clearly criminal chants, placards, and paraphernalia openly on display at the march mark a new low. Anti-Semitism and other forms of racism, together with the valorizing of terrorism on such a scale, is deeply troubling. This can't go on week by week. The streets of London are being polluted by hate, violence, and anti-Semitism. Members of the public are being mobbed and intimidated. Jewish people in particular feel threatened. Further action is necessary. Um, so you had a huge march of, I mean, the police said 300,000, the organizers said 800,000. I'm not very good at guessing how many people are in a demo, but it was huge, um, incredibly peaceful, incredibly family-friendly. And then you had a very small group of far-right thugs. I mean, I think there were about 100 arrests and there were only about 1,000 of them. So that's like one in 10 people <laughs> getting arrested, right? They were very violent people. And then Suella Braverman puts out this tweet as if it was the Palestine protesters that caused the problems. I mean, it's completely divorced from reality. And Braverman's depiction of the Palestine march is sharply at odds with that of the police. Overall, 126 arrests were made on Saturday, the majority of them far-right counter-protesters. And so far, out of the hundreds of thousands on the Palestine march, the Met have identified only around 10 people that they want to talk to about potential hate crimes. And yet, it's the Palestinian marches rather than far-right violence that remains the focus of government policy. This was the government's advisor on political violence, John Woodcock, on Radio 4's Today programme. You would l like these marches to stop the pro-Palestinian marches, however long it takes to get a ceasefire in Gaza. Uh, this, this is difficult because the, 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 right, the right for people to protest is, is really important and there's clearly very strong feelings on, uh, on this matter. However, I think you look at the scale of intimidation which Jewish people in in London uh, and and uh, and across the UK are feeling it, we should be treating this as a national emergency there are people who are uh, afraid to go out uh, to use public but certainly on the days of the marches and wider the the there are um, children who are scared to go to school being identifiably jewish we should never be prepared to accept what is what is happening and that has to be strongly factored into the decisions on on the marches in a way that it just it, 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 the current legal framework does not allow it to be and that's why i think you've got this disjunct between um politicians and the community security security trust jewish groups begging the marches um, to be uh, uh, to be halted by the police, and the police saying, "Well, we don't really have the powers to be able to to properly do that." So he says, "Oh, there is a there is a, an important right to protest on things people care about." But then he seems to, by the end, be endorsing that it should be banned, right? And I have to say, just the coverage of this have been so so frustrating. As someone who was on the demo, I'm sure I, I imagine actually most of you were probably on the demo. There were so many people there, right? Um, uh, to be there and to sort of see the atmosphere on that demonstration. There were just so many people, so many families. It literally was so peaceful, right? It, it, if anyone had tried to be sort of aggressive, it would have just seemed completely out of place. There were so many kids around, you know, moms, dads, kids, like loads and loads of homemade banners, um, which were, you know, all putting forward a message about peace. Now, I've seen on social media about 10 problematic banners, right? So there's this thread from... The, the Met Police. Now, I think actually some of the banners in that in that Met Police thread should should definitely not be crimes, um, but there are definitely a few of them that are offensive, um, and some of them are racist, right? So you've got about ten signs, 
out of about half a million people. And that is completely shaping the debate, which is just, it, it is just like gaslighting. If you were on that demo, as so many people were, to have it talked about in the same paragraph as the far-right demos, which were sort of a thousand drunk, coked-up people looking for a fight, and half a million people who were just desperately demanding a ceasefire, it's just, it's just outrageous. Like, this idea that you can just share... 10 placards and say that's what represented the march and therefore it should be banned because some people are feeling threatened. I mean, maybe one of the reasons people are feeling threatened is because there's all this smearing and slander going on about these marches. Um, the Sun has now reported that John Woodcock might get what he wants. Um, they say Sunak is ordering a crackdown on future protests. The paper reports this. The Sun understands the clampdown would see new laws drawn up to stop yobs climbing on statues, scaffolding and bus stops during protests. The law around fireworks, smoke bombs, and flares tightened up. The threshold at which cops can ban marches and protests due to safety concerns lowered. Now, that to me seems like the significant one there. And the law on glorifying terrorists like Hamas is also to be tightened, as cops say it is too vague to enforce. Currently now, of course, there will be a big lobby saying, well, uh, saying from the river to the sea is implicitly an endorsement of Hamas, and they'll be trying to make that illegal, hopefully. And there will be you know, too many people who say that would just be ridiculous. Um, Ash... What do you make of this? I mean, again, I know you were on that demonstration, sort of just seeing the the way this has been reported and then the political discussion, which is sort of built up around it, is just, it's so divorced from reality, right? Well, I want to talk a little bit about what the reality over the weekend was like, because in terms of the level of racist aggression that I and others experienced on Friday and Saturday, it was at an intensity which is pretty unlike anything I've ever experienced in my life. On Friday, I was at my local pub. Uh, two friends came in to meet with us. One had a rolled up Palestinian f- Palestinian flag because he'd been leafleting at a nearby tube station. Another one was wearing a Palestinian scarf. What happened was a group of men became really very aggressive. I walked over to try and de-escalate it a bit. And one of them was threatening to headbutt me. Now, before all this happened, me and my husband had seen the guy had been most aggressive, waving around a copy of the Evening Standard, which had a poppy on one side and a Palestinian flag on the other. This idea that there's a kind of battle or competition between these two images and the politics they represent had really riled him up. Now, I don't doubt that this man uh, was also on cocaine. I mean, he really seemed quite coked up to me. But that narrative became a pretext for him to behave in a way which was incredibly, incredibly aggressive towards me. And that's not all that happened. The next day, I'd gone to the demonstration with some friends and with my mom. He you know, Michael, uh, she was so proud to be on that protest. She'd made a homemade placard. And on one side, it said, love march. And it had a heart in the colors of the Palestinian flag. And on the other side of the placard, it highlighted the number of Palestinian children who'd been killed and called for a ceasefire. Now, Michael, you've met my mom. She's about five foot on a warm day. And she is just the most kind, loving, affectionate woman you could ever hope to meet. She is absolutely, you know, the total opposite of how these marches have been caricatured in the mainstream media. She came on the protest uh, with us and when she was on her way home, she was on the Victoria line, two guys got on 
and one of them shoved the placard in her face, called her disgusting, called her an anti-Semite, and told her to go back where she came from, but I think in rather more uncouth language. Um, I'm a lot more angry about the fact that this happened than she is. She's very philosophical about it. She takes a lot of comfort from the fact that other people intervened. But that combination of experiences really was instructive for seeing exactly the human cost of this moral panic this moral panic narrative which has been woven in the media and by politicians because john woodcock saying that Jewish people are afraid to leave their houses. And let me be absolutely clear, every single act of anti-Semitism, every single act of racism, every single act of aggression targeted at a Jewish person, no matter what that person's you know views are, if you're picking on someone for no other reason than they're Jewish, you are a racist and there's nothing um, just about that response. I do also think though, if you're saying Jewish people are afraid to leave the house, they're afraid to get on public transport, well, you know, swathes of the media, the entirety of the government was saying that these marches, which have been overwhelmingly peaceful, overwhelmingly dominated by people who are just calling for a ceasefire, that these are hate marches, that these are anti-Semitic marches. And the handful of individuals who are saying things which are genuinely offensive, they've been blown up out of it all proportion in order to demonize an entire cause. Now, of course, that's something which is deeply frightening and concerning. It's just, I find it very difficult on a, on a, on a personal level, not just a political one. I find it very difficult that the idea of someone being afraid to leave the house is used as a reason to push through all kinds of draconian measures. And some of the very real instances of Islamophobically motivated violence, violence meted out against people because they're perceived as Muslim or they're perceived as supporters of the Palestinian cause, that's not part of the media narrative at all. It's not something anyone cares to even consider. And it's certainly not being used as a reason to push through draconian laws. It's not that I would want it to be a reason to push through draconian laws, but at least there'd be some kind of level of consistency there. Because when John Woodcock is on Radio 4 and saying, uh, we need to ban these protests because Jewish people are afraid to leave the house, I'm like, okay, well, what should we ban? My mom, who's in her 60s, a retired woman, she's basically five foot nothing, wasn't safe to get the tube home in the early evening, right? You're not calling it for anything to be banned there, which makes me think this is less about taking action on racism than it is using racism against one community as a pretext to clamp down on legitimate political opinions that you happen to not like. I'm so sorry to hear that about your your wonderful mom. And I, I, I suppose it is it's difficult not to see that through a a, a racism lens as well. Like my mom was also on that demonstration. I mean, this is not a scientific study. I can't say, oh, my mom wasn't abused and yours was, therefore it's a race thing, right? That, that, that would be a, a ridiculous way of doing social science. But if you think about the way this has been talked about in, in public, right, and, and especially by people in sort of prominent positions in public life, 
when it comes to people wanting a ceasefire in 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 Israel, yes, there will be you know some people on social media, like a, a tiny proportion of people on a demonstration, who think about that in anti-Semitic terms or think about that in in sort of racial terms. But the vast, I mean, I can't really think of anyone of note who's who's talking about the conflict in those terms. Yet when it comes to the demonstrations. I mean, you had the Home Secretary who's just constantly talking about this being an, an, a problem of Islamism, a problem of Islamism. And does she really expect people in the public to sort of tell the difference between Islam and Islamism, right? I mean, I don't think she wants them to, right? Because I think she's very happy um, to, to fuel hate. You've also got people, I mean, we talked about Douglas Murray on, on last week's show, and there are others like him who are essentially saying, oh, these demonstrations are proof that there's been too much immigration, that we've now got this, um, this sort of enemy within, right? I mean, he was saying about Hamza Youssef, wasn't he, that he's infiltrated society. So while it is the marches who are being called racist, right? And obviously the marches want to stop. I mean, what is looking more and more like a genocide, right? 10,000 people have already been killed. If you look at the language that the Israeli politicians are using, it is hard to, you know, overstate what's currently going on, right? The marches want peace, but they are being attacked in a way which is very racialized, right? And that is from prominent people in, in in newspapers and also prominent politicians. And I do think that is increasing. I mean, you know, on record, it's increasing Islamophobia in the country, isn't it? Yes, obviously, this conflict is also increasing anti-Semitism, and that should absolutely be condemned. But I, I don't think that is being driven from the top um, in the same way that Islamophobia in this 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 moment is is being driven from the top. And I think you can tell that from you know the statements of politicians and the statements of organisers of these demonstrations who are constantly saying this isn't about religion, this isn't about race, this is about justice. There are actually also a lot of banners on the demo saying just that. You know, this isn't a Muslim thing. This is a human thing. You know, this isn't an Arab thing. This is a human thing. This is about kids. Um, I'm sure we'll come back to similar issues um, later on. For now, it's not just Suella Bravman, who's lost her job today. Her sacking um, has prompted a larger cabinet reshuffle, meaning some pretty big changes to Rishi Sunak's front bench. James Cleverly has moved from Foreign Secretary to Home Secretary, obviously replacing Braverman. Steve Barkley has been demoted from Health to Environment Secretary. Um, he replaces Therese Coffey. She's left the government. Um, also now out of a job is former party chairman Greg Hands. And Esther McVeigh is back in cabinet as minister of Covenant, common sense minister of common sense to target woke culture in whitehall now presumably she'll have to quit her job at gb news where she's targeting woke culture um on our airwaves um the biggest surprise though is the return of david cameron to westminster politics the former prime minister has been given a job for life in the lords in order for him to become the new foreign secretary more on that in our next story We've got over five and a half thousand of you tuning in tonight. If you are new to our coverage, um, then do consider going to navaramedia.com slash support. We are currently running a fundraiser to get 5,000 new regular supporters. Um, donations from you, our audience, are how we are funded um, and what keeps us going. And we are supporter-funded media. So if you want to support independent media, that link again is navaramedia.com slash support. You can find it in the description box below. Of course, if you are already a regular supporter, thank you so much. You make all of this possible. Suella Braverman may be out of government, but former Prime Minister David Cameron is back in. Now, it was a fairly surprising move from Rishi Sunak as Cameron is no longer an MP and so had to be given a life peerage on the spot. This was Sky's commentary as David Cameron walked into number 10 to accept his new job. There have been stories in the last few days that David Cameron, who had never really found his feet after leaving the job of Prime Minister, did jobs that were controversial, wrote a memoir, but never... 
and uh, put on weight. It's sort of bizarre um, low blow from Kay Burley there. Put on weight. Um, she was interrupting as her colleague Sam Coates explained what Cameron um, had been up to since leaving his job as Prime Minister. And that included making £7 million as a lobbyist for Greensill Capital. Cameron had personally texted Rishi Sunak to try to help Greensill secure COVID loans before the company went bust. One could say that that scandal tarnished Cameron's previous record in government, but there's not much of a record to defend or to tarnish. Now, a 2017 study from UCL suggested Cameron's signature policy, so austerity, was linked to 120,000 excess deaths in England. And it was Cameron's decision to hold a Brexit referendum without making any preparations for Brexit, which led to years of political chaos after 2016. And on foreign policy, the area of Cameron's new brief, he didn't exactly excel. His biggest decision was to send British planes to take out Gaddafi in 2011, leading to state collapse and civil war. A 2016 parliamentary report concluded this Libyan intervention based on erroneous assumptions David Cameron, ultimately responsible. That's from the Commons Foreign Affairs Select Committee. Ash, why is this happening now? Why is David Cameron back at the forefront of British politics? Well, I was trying to work it out from David Cameron's perspective. And the only thing I can really think of is that he's quite sincere about wanting to save the Conservative Party, in his view, from the sort of populist vandalism of the likes of Suella Braverman. Now, that doesn't mean that he's some beacon of decency, far from it, as we're about to discuss. But that's the only reason why I can think he would want to put himself in a place where he has to declare his register of interests and where he's making his money from. Because as we have seen, and as we'll discuss in a bit, he has... um, spent the intervening years since his time in office doing an awful lot of lobbying um, in ways which I think could be considered um, a little bit shady. In terms of why this is happening now, this is all to do with the balance of power within the Conservative Party and where Rishi Sunak is able to draw support. So one of the biggest problems facing him is that No conservative who's ambitious about their career wants to take one of the big offices of state right now because they see it as attaching themselves to a sinking ship. And it means that after there is presumably a Keir Starmer government and the conservatives are in opposition, that they won't be able to position themselves as a change candidate for leadership or shadow cabinet. You've got the problem of the Boris Johnson, Liz Truss, common sense group type constellation of MPs who you'd broadly characterize as low-tax, anti-trans headbangers. Now, these are people who've been dedicated to undermining Rishi Sunak's personal authority for quite some time. Suella Braverman had kind of been, um, you know, their, their Tribune, their woman on the inside, uh, carrying out a bit of a wrecking operation. And I think she came to the conclusion that now it was time to be a backbench martyr rather than being seen as part of a failing Rishi Sunak government. So, what does that leave him with? Well, it leaves him with what often called the moderate wing of the Conservative Party, though, of course, when it came to austerity and foreign policy, they were anything but. What we can fairly describe them as is the technocratic wing 
of the Conservative Party. While they were quite happy to smash the public sector and North Africa to pieces, they didn't want to hugely change the way in which the government uh, functions. They don't want to really change the constitutional settlement of the UK. They don't want to muck about with things like ECHR or when it was the case, membership of the EU. And that's not Rishi Sunak's um, most comfortable place to be. So one of the warning signs for Cameron back in 2016 when the referendum was being called was that, at the time, a newly minted MP by the name of Rishi Sunak, young, ambitious, career-driven, didn't want to be seen on the Remain side. So Politics does make strange bedfellows. The fact that this has sort of come round full circle, Rishi Sunak is now relying on David Cameron to shore up his government. It's emblematic of the dearth of options that he's got because no one wants to be a minister. If they do, they want to take Rishi Sunak's head off. That means that he had to go beyond the green benches of the House of Commons just to find someone who could do the job wondering if it is about the future of the Conservative Party more than policy or anything else. Because, I mean, there's clearly a plan by the hard right of the Conservative Party. Now, you know, as, as you say, economically, George Osborne and Cameron were about as hard right as it gets. But in terms of sort of stoking culture wars, for example, um, uh, they weren't as passionate as the Suella Bravmans of the world. There is clearly a very organised, sustained campaign on the sort of cultural right, you could say, of the Conservative Party, sort of via... GB News via Suella Braverman, they are intending to take over the Conservative Party after the next general election. And, you know, they've got a good chance of doing it. Now, presumably, um, there are many people in the Conservative Party who don't want that to happen. I wouldn't be surprised if Rishi Sunak was one of them. You know, he, he is also very right wing, but he does have sort of technocratic edges. I don't think he's too comfortable um, in the sort of GB News style mode of politics. And it, it might be the case that by putting David Cameron in there, you know that the Tories are going to lose the next general election. But what you want to do is is, is maintain as, as big a section of your vote share as you can. And you want the kind of voters that you want to shape the future of the Conservative Party, right? So if they think that it's from the red wall, now obviously there's lots of sort of assumptions going on here. But if you think it's sort of that move to the Boris Johnson style Conservative Party, which was a bit more sort of culturally right wing, I don't think Boris Johnson was that culturally right wing, but he was obviously more open to promoting people who were. If that's sort of your red wall base, and David Cameron is much your much more your sort of rich liberal base, they might be competing with with, with liberal Democrat voters um, in some of those, I think they're called the blue wall seats, aren't they? So maybe by putting David Cameron there, you're saying at our next general election, we're going to lose anyway, but we want our core vote to be rich liberals as opposed to being social conservatives. And that will potentially mean that the next time there is a Tory leadership election after Rishi Sunak stands down, the, the sensibles, I think, as they like to think of themselves, will, will keep the party as opposed to the GB News lot. That's kind of the only sense um, I can make of this. Um, I don't think it's because of David Cameron's foreign policy now, which, as we've said, is not too impressive a record. And as a bunch of people have pointed out, I'm on Twitter today. There will be lots of European leaders who aren't particularly um, happy to to welcome David Cameron for talks because they think he caused Brexit with his sort of naivety um, and has yeah left the country in a bit of a state. From his perspective, I think his legacy is terrible, right? Austerity, which everyone seems to agree is bad now, right? We should have borrowed when interest rates were low. Now we have terrible productivity and interest rates are high. It was a huge, huge missed opportunity. 
Of course, because Cameron is not an MP, he will not be able to be questioned by MPs in the usual manner in the House of Commons. And Commons Speaker Lindsay Hoyle um, has said he is looking into how Cameron can be held to account by elected representatives. Now, I'm not convinced these things make too much difference to policy. Whenever Lindsay Hoyle sort of comes out with these big grandstanding statements, I'm never too um, interested. And especially in the case of Israel-Palestine, I think the policy is pretty much set in the White House anyway. Which is interesting because on Israel-Palestine, Cameron has made some interesting past statements. So he said, everybody knows that we are not going to sort out the problem in the Middle East peace process while there is effectively a giant open prison in Gaza. So that was in 2010. And so he'd just become prime minister saying that in the House of Commons. Um, a month later, this time in Ankara, Turkey, he said the situation in Gaza has to change. Humanitarian goods and people must flow in both directions. Gaza cannot and must not be allowed to remain a prison camp. And then in 2016, he said to the House of Commons, what this government has consistently done and gone on doing is saying, yes, we are supporters of Israel, but we do not support illegal settlements. We do not support what is happening in East Jerusalem. And it's very important that this capital city is maintained in the way that it was in the past. So he's talking there um, about sort of the encirclement of Palestinian East Jerusalem by lots and lots of settlements. Basically, they're trying to pressure um, the Palestinians out, as you see in sort of um, the incidents in Sheikh Jarrah, where they're basically forcing out and Palestinian residents and replacing them with Jewish ones. Now, does this matter? Does Is this going to change British policy when it comes to Israel-Palestine? I would say no for a couple of reasons. One, as I said, policy is essentially you know, made in, in the White House when it comes to this issue, when it comes to the Middle East and Westminster. But two, what David Cameron is saying there is pretty much what every politician has said um, for the past few decades, right? Every politician says they're against settlements. George W. Bush said he was against settlements. Barack Obama said he was against settlements. And then what do they do? They just give Israel unconditional support anyway. They say, oh, we're giving them all these arms, we're giving them all these weapons, we're giving them all this financial support, but we have asked them nicely not to do settlements. Now, unless you as a politician are willing to put conditions on military support, unless you are willing to threaten sanctions, for example, for the consistent breach of international law, which is settlement expansion, then sort of saying these things to me is completely irrelevant. So I kind of, I think David Cameron, when it comes to Israel-Palestine, when it comes to Russia-Ukraine, is basically just going to be, you know, establishment policy as usual. I can't really see any changes um, coming there. And I don't think it's going to be particularly impacted by whether or not MPs are able to question him in the House of Commons. Um, this is very much uni-party territory, isn't it? The, the, the Tories and Labour very much in agreement when it comes to Israel-Palestine. Israel are our allies. And so therefore, um, we're fairly relaxed about Palestinian kids getting killed every day. Hospitals have become a primary frontier in Israel's ongoing assault on Gaza. The latest healthcare facility to fall victim to Israel's attacks is the Al-Quds Hospital, the second largest in the territory. The Palestinian Red Crescent has reported this heavy gunfire continued in the vicinity of Al-Quds Hospital in Tal al-Hawa, Gaza City. Shelling and violent explosions were heard in the area. The convoy of vehicles that set off from the southern Gaza Strip towards the hospitals, accompanied by the ICRC, so the International Committee for the Red Cross, to secure the evacuation of patients and medical staff from Al-Quds Hospital, was stopped on the Al-Wusta Governorate. Um, the convoy is still waiting for the situation to settle down in the surrounding areas of the hospital to be able to reach it to start the evacuation process. So that all sounds incredibly grim. Um, that convoy ultimately had to turn back with the Red Crescent saying this, urgent, and so the Palestinian Red Crescent's evacuation convoy, accompanied by the International um, Committee for the Red Cross, had to turn back after it left Khan Yunis towards Al-Quds Hospital. 
It had to do so due to relentless bombardment and dangerous situation where the hospital is located in Tel Al-Hawa. The medical team, patients and their families remain besieged in the hospital with no food, water or electricity. So we're seeing again um, the Israelis saying, oh, you need to evacuate your hospital. Um, and then people try and evacuate the hospital and then they suffer bombardments, right? And these are medical staff. Um, shortly after that message, the IDF reportedly opened fire inside the Al-Quds hospital. The IDF has released this video. They say it shows a Hamas fighter firing a rocket-propelled grenade towards an Israeli tank from the entrance of the hospital. It also accuses the fighter of then hiding behind civilians, justifying the gunfire, which allegedly killed 21 people. Um, the Al-Quds hospital has pretty much shut down, and that's due to a shortage of fuel, though patients and refugees remain on site. It joins Palestine's largest hospital, or Gaza's largest hospital, the Al-Shifa, which has also ceased to function. And the situation for many people inside Al-Shifa hospital is bleak. This is the BBC's Rushdie Abalouf reporting on the situation from southern Gaza. In the last half an hour, I made call to uh, somebody who's trapped in the hospital with about 10,000 people, according to uh, Hamas run authority uh, in Gaza. He told me that tanks are surrounding the hospital and they are closer and closer. Even they are at the, at the gate of the, of the hospital. He said overnight about four people tried to escape from the hospital and they will shoot and they were lying on the ground bleeding for about two hours. And then they were like uh, uh, dragged in, inside the hospital. According to the Gazan Health Authority, medical waste is also accumulating in Al-Shifa Hospital with no way of transporting it out. And we should warn you, the next images we're going to show you are very distressing. Um, over 100 bodies remain unburied at the hospital because of the bombardment. Now you can see there um, decomposing dead bodies arranged in the courtyard outside the hospital. And of course, that's incredibly distressing for anyone there, um, for anyone who's lost anyone. And it, of course, adds to the already high risk of disease in Gazan hospitals. They don't have proper running water. They don't have proper electricity supplies. They're getting bombarded day after day. And now they have lots of unrefrigerated dead bodies in the courtyard of the hospital. It's almost, you know, un unbearable to have to say that. Attacks have also been carried out on the Indonesian hospital north of Gaza City. This is footage of an explosion near the health centre. The hospital wasn't directly struck in that bombardment, but medical treatment for the injured was halted. So how does Israel justify those attacks? Well, this was the reasoning given by the IDF. Um, they say, we know that ambulances are used to transport patients in need of emergency medical care and hospitals are institutions where patients go to receive medical treatment, right? For Hamas, ambulances are used to transport its operatives and weapons to disguise them as civilians. And hospitals are in fact terrorist infrastructure, not the most medical purpose. This is against international law and turns them into legitimate military Target. So they're saying hospitals and ambulances are legitimate military targets. And that tweet was quickly deleted by the IDF. I think they had some concerns um, about what it could mean in any war crimes trial um, by calling hospitals and ambulances legitimate military targets. But it's a statement our own defense secretary appears to agree with. Speaking at the weekend, Grant Shapps seemed to think we've all just become a little too squeamish. We've sort of forgotten that in war, very sadly, people lose their lives. When Britain 
bombed Dresden, 35,000 people have apparently lost their lives. People die in war. When you have an organization like Hamas hiding and shielding themselves with and under the civilian population, it's a sad fact that some people will but lose their lives. That was Grant Shapps speaking on Remembrance Sunday and casually bringing up Britain's destruction of Dresden as though it was an inevitability of, of war. We did it to Dresden. Surely the Israelis can do it Gaza to Gaza, sorry. Now, Grant Shapps should brush up on his history, right? The Geneva Convention was written after the Second World War. So when we talk about the laws of war, they're nearly all written after the Second World War. And yes, it was to try and deter a repeat of the crimes such as those committed by the Nazis. But it was also to try and prevent those atrocities committed by the Allied forces, right? Dresden was one of the situations politicians and legal scholars wanted to prescribe in future. It wasn't just, all of these laws of war weren't just to stop what the Nazis did. It was also to say that all sides in the Second World War committed atrocities which weren't necessary, you know, which weren't proportionate to the ends they were trying to achieve. Could we have won the war without killing so many civilians in in Dresden? Could we, or could America, could the West, could the the Allies, sorry, have won um, the war in the Pacific without dropping uh, two um, atomic bombs on on Japan, right? These these were the questions that were being drawn up. It's not like, oh, it was done in the Second World War, so therefore it's fine and we can do it again. That's not how these things work, or these things work, sorry. And the death toll in Gaza, of course, means comparison to Dresden are absolutely warranted. Now, estimates for the number of people who were killed range between 25,000. Grant Shapps there said 35,000. That was in Dresden. Well, in Gaza, there have already been over 11,000 Palestinian killed by Israel since the 7th of October. So we are really in the realms of Dresden right now. That figure, though, um, in Gaza is probably an underestimate because it hasn't been updated since contact was lost with major hospitals over the weekend. So the humanitarian catastrophe is clear for all to see. Of course, when facing Western publics, Israel says that, yes, this is very sad, but it's all for a just cause. They're just trying to liberate Gaza from terrorists. But speaking to their domestic audience, Israeli politicians are much more candid. This was Israeli Agriculture Minister Avi Deichter speaking at the weekend. You might have been able to work out what he was saying there if you were listening on the podcast. He's saying, it was an Israeli minister, saying five times that the current operation is the Nakba of Gaza, the Nakba of Gaza. So you'll probably know this if you're regular viewers of this show. The Nakba um, is how the Palestinians describe what happened in 1948 when Israel was created and there was ethnic cleansing um, in in lots of towns where Palestinians were, were pushed out of their homes never to return. Now, up to now, it's tended to be sort of Palestinians who you hear sort of saying, this is a second Nakba. This could be a second Nakba. They're kicking us out of our homes. We're not going to be able to return. There you've got an Israeli minister saying, this is the second Nakba. This is the second Nakba, right? And so when you hear politicians in this country saying, oh yes, war kills people, but we have to let Israel achieve some of their war aims because they've just been subject to a terrorist attack, sort of pretending that all they want to achieve, you know, they're also feeling bad about killing all of these people, but they're just trying to um, reduce the, the military capacity of Hamas. Well, when these politicians are speaking to their domestic audience, they are admitting what they want, right? 
They want to clear out Gaza. They want a Nakba of Gaza. So why are we waiting to demand a ceasefire? Not only is every day uh, before a ceasefire another day where you know hundreds of people will die, many of them children, also every day at which there is not a ceasefire, that is letting Israel get closer and closer to their war aims. And as much as, you know, Keir Starmer might say their war aims is just to defend themselves against terrorism, if you listen to what Israeli politicians are saying, they're saying something very different, right? The Israelis aren't just trying to sort of achieve some genuine noble aim and they're killing some people in the process. They are trying to, or at least lots of their politicians are saying they're trying to, clear out 2.2 million people from their homes so that they can take the land. That's what Nakba of Gaza means. Israel are trying to justify their deadly bombardment of Gaza by making some big claims about Hamas. First, they told us Hamas were ISIS, and now they're telling us that they are Nazis. And speaking to the BBC, the Israeli president, Isaac Herzog, said he had new proof. I want to show you something exclusive, Laura. So this is Adolf Hitler's book, translated to Arabic, Mein Kampf. It's the book that led to the Holocaust and the book that led to World War II. This is the book that led to his victory in elections in, in Germany, which led to the worst atrocity of humankind, which the British fought against. Well, this book was found just a few days ago in northern Gaza in a, in a children's living room, which was turned into a military operation base of Hamas on one of the, on the body of one of the uh, terrorists and murderers of Hamas, and he even marked, he wrote notes, he marked, he marked and, le and learned and learned again and again Adolf Hitler's ideology of hating the Jews, of killing the Jews, of burning the Jews, of slaughtering the Jews. This is the real warrior act. So all those who demonstrated yesterday, I'm not saying that all of them support Hitler, but all I'm saying is by by omitting to understand what Hamas ideology is all about, they're basically supporting this ideology. How very kind of him to concede that not all half a million people marching on Saturday in London, sort of concerned, devastated that hundreds of kids are being killed every day by his military. Thank you for him. How generous for him to concede that they're not all Nazis, right? How thoughtful, how reasonable. Of course, Israel has already killed over 4,000 children in Gaza, so the claim this book was found in a children's living room seems to me particularly sinister. Of course, if Gazan children have been reading Mein Kampf, perhaps they, like adults, or like the adults of Gaza, are Nazis too, and therefore fair game for mass slaughter. Of course, they can also say if they do kill some kids, oh, well, kids' bedrooms are now fair game because they're being used by Hamas fighters who, by the way, all have a copy of Mein Kampf on them. Right? It, it really is bordering on the ridiculous here. In any case, the existence of a fairly new-looking copy of Mein Kampf in a war zone does seem a little too convenient for Israeli propagandists, and Herzog has a history of sharing spurious documents in TV interviews. This is a tweet from Middle East Eye from the 23rd of October. So it says, A document presented by Israeli President Isaac Herzog as proof that Hamas intended to develop chemical weapons is actually an amateur biography of 9-11 attacker Ramzi Youssef and contains no instructions on how to develop chemical weapons. So he's, he's produced some pretty dodgy props before. In response to that tweet, so that tweet's from three weeks ago, a prominent Palestinian account shared this again three weeks ago, right? So it says this, when will Israel find the Mein Kampf with Hamas fighters? So the answer to Refat's question was that they would find 
Mein Kampf within three weeks. As I say, it's all a little bit too convenient, isn't it? And there's obviously no proof other than just the Israeli president, a very biased person, sort of waving this book, which looks fairly new, you know, in, in front of the Western press. Now, I wouldn't trust the Israeli president, and I don't think you should either. Um, the next part of his interview with Laura Koonsberg provides more evidence to that effect. Now, Herzog is asked about reports from the Shifa hospital in northern Gaza. There are reports there on the ground of babies dying in the neonatal unit after power to their incubators was cut off. You say that Gazans have been told to that leave. That is not They've true. Given... By the way, it's, it's not true. Well, we, we, will, we will try through all. the day. There to... is a lot of spin by Hamas. There's a lot of spin by Hamas, but there is electricity in Shifa. Everything is operating. We're speaking to the managers. We haven't gone into Shifa. We're unfortunately underneath Shifa. There's a huge, huge terror base. Actually, the headquarters, the headquarters of Hamas ISIS operations is right there under Shifa. Now, exactly what are we supposed to do? Leave it as is and then in a few years time go again through the same motion and you will say it's inproportionate and we will have civilians being killed. So we are calling on all of the those uninvolved to go out to another hospital nearby and we're coordinating it very delicately with all forces around that Well, the, the World Health Organization this morning has said they've lost communications with that hospital and there are reports from doctors there on the ground about a terrible situation and our viewers there can see the images from Gaza that many, many people have not been able to leave. They have not been able to escape. But you mentioned there, President because Herzog, Hamas is what may them. happen... So once again, he's saying there are no real problems in, in Gazan hospitals. The electricity is still working. Babies aren't dying. And even if there were problems, it would all be the fault of Hamas. Now, on the tragic story about the babies, a photo was shared widely on Twitter over the weekend. Rohan Talbot from Medical Aid for Palestinians posted it and said, quote, Staff at Shifa Hospital have shared this photo of their heroic attempts to keep the premature babies alive in an operating theatre after they were forced to shut down the neonatal ICU. Sekunda Kamani from Channel 4 News um, also tweeted this, seeming to confirm the story. Just spoke to a senior doctor at Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza, could hear gunfire in the background whilst he described a horrific scene. More than 30 babies from neonatal unit at major risk taken out of incubators and placed in an operating theatre because barely any electricity, two died. And Kamani followed that tweet up uh, the next day with this. Just spoke to the same doctor at Al-Shifa. He said a third baby died earlier today and that no one has been evacuated. He said staff wasn't able to access the 300 litres of fuel Israel dropped off as they were too afraid of being shot by Israeli forces to go collect it. So that's a reference to Israel have been putting out this story. You know, if they're struggling with electricity for these, these um, premature babies, we'll, we'll drop some canisters of fuel outside the hospital. Lots of dispute about uh, how long that fuel could run the hospital for, but as you're hearing here, the doctors are scared to go get it in case they get shot. I personally trust Channel 4 News and medical aid for Palestinians a lot more than I do the Israeli president. Um, if you don't know, perhaps you might take the World Health Organization more seriously. Their director general tweeted this. WHO has managed to get in touch with health professionals at the Al-Shifa hospital in Gaza. The situation is dire and perilous. It's been three days without electricity, without water, and with very poor internet, which has severely impacted our ability to provide essential care. The constant gunfire and bombings in the area have exacerbated the already critical circumstances. Tragically, the number of patient fatalities has increased significantly. Regrettably, the hospital is not functioning as a hospital anymore. 
The world cannot stand silent while hospitals, which should be safe havens, are transformed into scenes of death, devastation and despair. Ceasefire now. I don't find these Israeli politicians very convincing when they come out on TV with these props. I'm not really sure who does. And that makes me sort of wonder, what are they trying to do here? Is this to try and persuade people? Is this to try and shore up their base? Is this to try and sort of flood the airways with with bullshit so people don't know what to believe? Um, also notable that their their lines changed. So sort of initially they were saying, oh, we wouldn't possibly dare to bomb a hospital. And now they're saying, oh, of course we bomb hospitals. They're all home to Hamas, right? This is This is how their story keeps changing. What do you make of it? Well, I think the first thing in terms of the technique of coming up with absolute bullshit, this is Steve Bannon 101. You flood the zone with shit. Because if you fill the airwaves with unreliable information, it doesn't necessarily mean that people mistrust you specifically. They mistrust everything they see in the media. And we've seen a real deliberate attempt to cultivate an aura of mistrust, which sure, impacts the Israeli government, but it also impacts everything else as well. So we've seen a concerted attempt by the Israelis and an awful lot of the mainstream media falling in line to cast doubt on the numbers which are being released of casualties by the Palestinian health ministry. So now it all becomes bracketed with the Hamas-run health ministry, or these are Hamas numbers. As we've discussed in a previous show, Michael, these numbers have tended to be quite reliable, independent institutions uh, such as the UN have said these are reliable numbers. They tend to be, you know, they're as diligent as they can be within a very difficult um, situation, but it becomes a tit for tat. So if we're going to mistrust the Israeli government, well, I guess we also have to mistrust the Palestinian health ministry. That adds up to a win for the Israeli government because they're the ones who are conducting these bombardments, which are killing thousands of Palestinian civilians, a disproportionate number of whom are children. When it comes to why these props, um, I'm surprised it took this long to get to uh, Mein Kampf has been found in the children's bedroom slash military base in Gaza, because this is something that the Israeli government have formed for. Netanyahu claimed that Hitler really got the idea uh, to exterminate Europeans' Jewish communities from a Muslim. What this does is that it kind of reinforces this sense of the real existential threat to Jewish people isn't right-wing anti-Semitism, because of course right-wing anti-Semites are often some of Israel's most fierce advocates in the global north. It's Muslims and it's Palestinians specifically. It shores up that sense of existential threat, which keeps you locked in a forever war with an occupied oppressed and colonized population. And it also does something which Barnaby has spoken about on the show, which is it makes Palestinians the group, the chosen group to pay for Europe's crimes in reminding um, people the absolutely, uh, you know, there's no word that's strong enough, horrific, inhumane, uh, savage anti-Semitism of the Nazis, it sort of creates the sense of, oh, well, you know, this isn't reasonable, but, you know, maybe maybe they deserve a chance to be unreasonable, right? 
And so it's something which I think is a very manipulative and very cynical ploy. Uh, what it does is it sort of says, if you want to be an ally to the Jewish people in the fight against anti-Semitism, you have to be okay with the dehumanization of Palestinians. That's, of course, a totally false premise that doesn't add up at all. But that's something which is quite beneficial to the Netanyahu government. And I think what all of this adds up to taken as a whole is that it's meant to convey the idea that there's no such thing as an innocent Palestinian. If a Palestinian dies, it's their own fault. If it's not their fault, it's Hamas's fault. If a Palestinian dies, well, it's because they voted in Hamas in the elections that they were forced to hold by the Americans and then Hamas consolidated power in a in fending off a coup, which had also been uh, you know, encouraged by the West. The idea is no such thing as an instant Palestinian, no such thing as a Palestinian civilian, no such thing as a Palestinian baby dying for lack of oxygen or dying for the lack of an incubator. It's precisely the kind of dehumanization which facilitates the act of genocide. And that's why so many genocide scholars have said that's exactly what's happening. If you want to distract from the war crimes you're committing, do some identity politics. That seems to be the current social media strategy of the State of Israel. Their official Twitter account has posted this. The first ever pride flag raised in Gaza. Yoav Atzmoni, who is a member of the LGBTQ plus community, wanted to send a message of hope to the people of Gaza living under Hamas brutality. His intention was to raise the first pride flag in Gaza as a call for peace and freedom. Now let's take a closer look at those images. So this message of hope to Gazans is being delivered in front of complete, complete carnage, right? So he's holding up a rainbow flag. It says, in the name of love. And in the background are loads and loads of completely destroyed houses, flattened. Now I'm sure any gay Gazans killed or injured in air raids will feel seen that an Israeli soldier has raised the rainbow flag over their wrecked communities. Now, the other photo shared shows an Israeli flag with rainbow stripes in front of a tank. Now, this one seems even more ambiguous, right? Is the idea that they are freeing gay Palestinians from Hamas, or are they laying the ground for gay Israelis to move in once the Gazans have been kicked out? Obviously, that flag is being waved in territory which isn't Israeli, right? They are going into Gaza. It's completely gross. And the grotesque deployment of arguments like this are not new, they're not unique, also this weekend, Israeli government spokesperson Ilon Levy tweeted this. This is really grotesque. This image of the half a million or so marchers in London. And then he says, I don't think London has ever seen such a large demonstration of rape apologists before. Now, of course, that is an absolutely disgusting smear of half a million protesters marching for peace. But it also feeds into the narrative Israel wants to project. It is Israel that protects women against the Gazan Palestinian barbarians. So while they bomb thousands of kids, it is Israel who stands for LGBT people and it is Israel who stands for women. The, the LGBT Gazans and women they're killing, that's mere collateral for their very just and noble end. Of course, to try to defend the indefensible, Israel will also play the race card. Mark Lamont Hill challenged the former Israeli ambassador to the US on his claims that Hamas used hospitals as bases. This is what happened next. It's been proven with certainty, it's been proven with certainty that the headquarters of Hamas is under the Al-Shifa hospital in 
Gaza City. Now, you know what happened a couple of days We're ago? Proven by Hamas let's, had let's, a big... So let's, what? So let me, hold on. Mark, not, I, are you going to let me finish? I, I, can't allow you to, I, I cannot allow you to, name, to say 15 things that are unfactual and not be challenged on them. I'm happy to let you talk, but I, I'm going to ask clarifying questions. You're going to tell me what's factual? Mark, I'm asking I spent five years of my life studying this, living it. What was the last time? What was the last time you were in Gaza, Mark? What was the last time you were in Gaza? 18 months ago. When was the last time you were in Gaza? When was the last time you were in Gaza? Uh, a few a few years ago. Okay, so you said Al Shifa Hospital has been proven Hamas headquarters. What independent yes. uh, uh, reference? What source? What investigation has proven that? Who has proven that it's an Al Shifa Hospital? Since it's been a proven fact, who proved it? So now we're going to get into this basic like Holocaust denying idea that that evidence that Israel has shown is not valid. We are bombing cities, towns, houses civilian houses, civilian buildings. We're killing 4,000 kids and rising. We're killing 10,000 people and rising, 11,000 people and rising to protect LGBT Gazans or the LGBT Gazans who survive this bombardment and siege. We are opposing um, demonstrations of solidarity with Palestinian people because that is tantamount to rape apology. And we don't have to provide evidence for the claims we make to justify hospitals because to demand that evidence is tantamount to Holocaust denial. Now, Ash, I mean, I do think the common thread here is sort of feeding into a, a very sort of contemporary style identity politics argument where you can sort of shut down debate by saying it's racist to answer, ask a question. You can say we're doing some really evil things to benefit the culture, you know, to benefit certain minorities. And well, obviously women aren't minorities, but LGBT people are. And, you know, I do think it's something that Israel have become rather practiced in, and we are seeing quite a lot of it over the past four weeks or so. Well, I think that some of it is relatively new. So, you know, very pleased to see Israel there talking about the LGBT plus community, very right on and woke of them. Um, but it's, also, I think, a lot older. So if you cast your mind back to the invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq, there was propaganda being pumped out, uh, which was suggesting that this would somehow be to the benefit of women in both those countries who were under the thumb of Islamic oppression. And I remember there was one particular piece of propaganda, which was put out by uh, the U.S. Air Force, and it was, hey, Taliban, look at the sky. Your women can't drive, but ours can fly. Um, and so this idea of saying, well, if you believe in social progress, so if you believe in civil rights on the basis of race or for gay people or rights for women, you have to be okay with bombing entire civilian populations indiscriminately because ultimately it's for their own good. You're wiping out a backwards and regressive culture. So I think that the flying the rainbow flag and saying in the name of love, that's something which does have um, a kind of older history to it and is very much drawn from the sort of liberal interventionism playbook of the early 2000s. But I think that the use of 
the smear, Holocaust denying. It's Holocaust denying to ask for evidence that Hamas is headquartered in Al-Shifa hospital from a source which isn't just the Israeli government or armed forces. I think that comes down to the way in which Israel has legitimized itself from its very beginning. Basically, you're saying that this particular country gets to displace gets to kill, gets to dispossess a whole people who are already living there because it comes cloaked with the moral authority and the legitimacy of a recognized victim status. And of course, the reason why that's so powerful is that there's truth in that. The Holocaust was a crime against humanity. It was an attempt and a very nearly successful attempt to exterminate the Jewish populations of Europe. That is a real atrocity. And then the atrocities which were carried out following the Holocaust in the name of the state of Israel, whether it's something like the Dear Yassin massacre, whether it's the Nakba, the Naksa, the ongoing uh, dispossession of people in the West Bank, the cyclical and repetitive bombardments of Gaza, which have now culminated in this mass slaughter of over 10,000 people and 4,000 children. Well, it all goes back to that original recognition of victim status. You know, the, the advocates of Israel say, well, this is what it means to truly recognize the victim status of Jewish people. You have to be okay with what the Israeli state is doing. And that's wrong. That's morally wrong. It's politically wrong. It's factually wrong. And I think that for Jewish people who are intensely critical of what the Israeli state does, I think it can be emotionally very difficult. You're seeing your own identity weaponized to deny the humanity of others. For lots of Jewish people who've been taught about the history of the pogroms, uh, you know, that the histories of anti-Jewish persecution, um, I think that there's there's a kind of, you know, sickening, twisted logic to it, which which people find quite difficult. So Yes, I think that there's a kind of new identity politics twist on all these things, but these roots go a lot, a lot deeper. Navara Live will be back tomorrow. For now, you've been watching Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.